Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Welcome to episode 100. Hard to believe that we've reached the triple digit mark. We are over 26,000 listens as well, and this thing is just keep on rolling. Today also marks my first podcast in retirement. If you didn't see my Facebook or LinkedIn post, I retired at midnight on Friday which means that at the time of the release of this podcast, I've been retired for exactly 30 hours. Doesn't feel any different. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank uh, Stu Belt, publicly recognized Stu, who encouraged me to do something special for my 100th episode. Maybe have someone introduce me or interview me, I should say. And uh, I I thought about that. I was hoping that I'd be able to announced my post-Navy career intentions, but those things have not solidified just enough that I really feel comfortable doing that. Hopefully this week or next, uh, something will break. But uh, Stu, I just want to say thanks. I'm still focused on the hunt, and so time just kind of got away from me, and we didn't do anything special. And I think, I think there's something to be said for treating this one just like all the other podcasts. So, Turning to today's guest, I talked to Ian Wexler. Ian retired from the Navy JAG Corps this past fall, and in September, he took over as the Director of Institute for Security Governance, which falls under the Defense Security Cooperation University, which, of course, is part of Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Now, prior to this, then-Captain Ian Wexler was the director of the Institute for International Legal Studies up in Newport, Rhode Island, and Ian's going to tell you his story about how he got from DILS to ISG. Before we turn to our conversation, just want to put out an official disclaimer that any opinions or statements made by Ian Wexler today are those in a personal capacity and not those of the Department of Defense, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, the Defense Security Cooperation University, or the Institute for Security Governance. And with those disclaimers out of the way, we now turn to our conversation. Ian Wexler, been a long time. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Tom. It has been a long time. I know we were just sort of chatting about it, but it may have been as long as uh, almost 19 years ago, something along those lines. Yeah, it's It's amazing how sometimes time just kind of flies and you don't even realize it. Speaking of which, how long have you been out of the Navy JAG Corps? I've been out since officially since uh, October 1st of this past year. So less than two months as I look at the calendar. Wow. And you're where? The Institute for Security Governance now? Yes. Institute for Security Governance. It's based out in Monterey, California. I'm a DOD civilian. It's a great organization. The goal of which is really to advance U.S. national security interests by strengthening institutional capacity of partners and allies uh, with their defense and security. If you think about DILS doing the legal institutional capacity building, ISG does everything else. 
So we're a very large implementer based out of California. We do everything from working with our partners on logistics, security governance, cyber defense, protection of civilians, women, peace and security, maritime security, you name it, we do it. The idea is for us to increase our partners' capacity so in their security sector so that when we work with them, it'll uh, it'll be a lot more smoother and they'll have a lot more of a comprehensive system, which I think in the long term will help U.S. interests abroad. Does this fall under the Defense Security Cooperation Agency? It does. We are part of the DSEA. In fact, we fall under DSU, Defense Security Cooperation University, a subset of DSEA, which works okay. for OSD policy. Yeah, because obviously I was at the Marshall Center in Garmisch which also fell under them. Dills falls under them and all the other regional centers, which of course, you know, that whole regional center network is probably the number, I always joke, the number 11th priority out of their top 10 priorities with all the other cooperation stuff they had going on. We work with the uh, regional centers quite a bit, have similar mission sets in terms of training and education. We do the institutional capacity building, which is a little bit more, I would say, complicated from that perspective, but we partner very much with all regional centers. Sure. So rewinding the clock here, you did, I think we were talking, you said 24 years, 10 months in the Navy? Yes. Retired last October. What were some of the jobs that you held? I mean, if if you wanted to give the, the entire thumbnail grade, if you wanted to just do it at the 30,000 foot level, you can do that too. Sure. I've had got six days at sea, Tom. So I consider myself to be pretty salty. That's about five and a half days too much, in my opinion. I've deployed three times in the joint world, twice to Iraq, once to Guantanamo. Consider uh, joint deployments to be army deployments. As you know, that's usually who's dominating the joint world. So I'm very familiar with our army uh, brethren and, and sisters from that perspective. I did that three times. I was in Iraq in 2004. I was in Iraq in 2010, working with detention operations type missions. In Iraq, I was working with the Central Criminal Court of Iraq originally. And then in 2010, I was the director of the Law and Order Task Force in Sadr City. Great work, very exciting work. And then in 2015, I had a job that was near and dear to your heart. I was the SGA for Joint Task Force Guantanamo, which I think is uh, probably a highlight of my career. And I'm certain it was for you too. What a great job. Largest deployed legal office at the Department of Defense at that time. Just an unbelievable amount of uh, issues that pop up. And uh, I really, really enjoyed and learned from that quite a bit uh, from that experience. But I've been an SJA. Uh, I think the last time I was an SJA was at Comp Sub back in Hawaii. Really enjoyed that tour. But for most of my last 14 years, I was out of the Navy JAG Corps, so to speak. I was either in joint roles at Northcom, NORAD, Gitmo, DILS director. So it's been a long time since I've been out of Navy command. So anyway, that's that's it in a nutshell. I've never been stationed in D.C., never been to the Navy Yard. Uh, Man, you've been living a dream. Yeah, I was going to say the difference between you and me at Gitmo is I was the last person down there on a two-year rotation. You know, they used to do a drug deal. There was three of us. First, Pat McCarthy went down in a TDY status, which evolved into a PCS status. Then Don Martin was down there for three years. And then I followed up with two years. And once I left, it became a truly a um, IA on one-year rotations. But they would assign us to the Region Legal Service Office Southeast Guantanamo Detachment. So I used to joke that I technically worked for Lieutenant Ryan Santacola as a commander. I'd work for Ryan Santacola. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, he is a great guy. And so you're right. In Gitmo, I mean, unless you've been there, I don't think people appreciate the, in my opinion, the outsized responsibility the SJA has down there. 
as you said, you know, I'll let you talk about it. But as you said, you had a lot of people working for you and a lot of responsibility. Yep. I think we had, uh, we were in the mid hundreds with detainees at that point. There's a lot of focus. You're the liaison with the ICRC. You are the International Committee of the Red Cross. You're uh, dealing with uh, some of the high-level issues with your high-level detainees on a regular basis. You or your staff. You're briefing congressmen and women who come down. You're briefing high-level officials. You're the person who's providing all the answers on behalf of the task force, mostly because you have the largest office. So every day there's a new issue, whether it's from State Department, whether it's from uh, OSD, or whether it's from uh, Southcom. And they're unique issues. You got to do the research. And I'll tell you what, a year was a long time. <laughs> Two years is a little much when you don't have any internet access to your family. I was unaccompanied. Yeah, well, my family was down there, which was another difference. They were able to move down there. It was a great place for the family. The stress level with the job, you know, you were working for Southcom and for DOD. And I remember when we were doing the baseline review where we basically were doing a security inspection of all the cells because there was a lot of contraband introduced by somebody. In any event, when that hit the fan and hit the press, I got a call from the Navy JAG front office asking for the details. And I and I remember just sitting there kind of stupefied, like, why are you calling me? This is not your mission. This is not your purview. But of course, I couldn't say that because, well, it was the JAG front office and we all know how they played. And I answered the questions and, and basically said, hey, if you got an issue, call Bill Leetzow in the Pentagon. He's he's fully aware of this. I actually called Jay Johnson because I used to be on weekly conversations with Jay Johnson about what was going on. So I've always found that was kind of interesting. But when I was there, besides the JDG commander, you were the continuity. I was there for two years. And I had access to all Pat McCarthy's emails. I had access to all Don Martin's emails. And I spent the first three months before my family arrived reading through those things. And it came in handy like a year and a half, two years later when the stuff started recycling again. And you you would know the reason. So that is a heavy lift. And as we said before this, despite that heavy lift, they showed your appreciation by passing you over for promotion the first time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the second time. The first time I was deployed to Iraq, you know, in 2004. So that was a... Uh quite the hit uh, when you're in a combat zone, particularly a chaotic one, which was 2004 and having that, but that's okay. That sort of comes with the territory. Uh, the Jack Corps made me well after that. I'd say I always like to take difficult jobs. And I, I think for, for a lot of your listeners, Tom, and I, I'm a, I think I told you I'm an avid uh, listener to your podcast and it really helped me get into the retirement mentality uh, when I started to listen to your pod, really listen to the different guests and all those things. But from my perspective, when you have something like that ha happen to you, I think the best advice I was given uh, at that point was uh, I asked around and I said, hey, to the people who I trusted, and I knew it would give me unvarnished opinions. When you do fail to select, you're in that position. Hey, was I one of the people that, uh, that you were surprised didn't make the list? The reason why I asked those questions to the people who I trusted was because the answer was, well, not really a surprise. Well, then you got to make personal and professional decisions based off of that. You have to be honest and get honest, unvarnished opinion and advice from good friends. And so each time it happened to me, 404 and then ultimately to 06, I always thought to myself, okay, let me ask that after the emotion subsides, after the disappointment, let me ask that honest question. And I was told, hey, yeah, stick it around. 
you know, you'd have a good opportunity. You were one of the one or two people maybe who we thought we were surprised didn't get selected. So from that perspective, I tried to endure and not take it uh, too personally. It was definitely a, it was a uh, kick to the nether regions, <laughs> as you know. And, yeah. And, um, but you got to endure. And I certainly don't hold any uh, bitterness about it. It all worked out. I've had a great run, great career. I couldn't have done it without uh, a lot of the folks in the Navy Jack Corps hierarchy supporting me. Guys like Paul Kiamos, who we talked about, who I think would be a great interview. People like that. Even uh, Paul LeBlanc was my first boss. You know, I, I just think that people look out for you. I, I have an unusual career. I'm known as being extraordinarily candid. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't play too well sometimes in our community. It doesn't play well in the legal community, I found. It plays a lot better in the line community where they're looking for unvarnished legal opinions uh, and they're looking for uh, policy recommendations, those kinds of things. I don't think I would. I was ever unprofessional, but I think I had a reputation for being very, very blunt and straightforward and having a lot of candor. And I recognize that's not everybody's cup of tea. So there's no, no harm, no foul. I started drifting towards a lot of these leadership positions after Guantanamo. I went to Northcom after that, and I really, really wanted to go after the uh, become the next director at Dills, which I thought was just a, a gem out there. And I really tried hard uh, to get that job and really fought for it. And so I was excited. I was the Dills director for four years from 2019 to 2023. And when I retired this past summer, and that's a spectacular organization, in my opinion, and something I think that maybe... Not a lot of folks have a lot of experience with. It's almost doubled in size. It's now got uh, well over 30 attorneys and 60 or 70 plus people, and they're growing. It's an organization, I think, that uh, uses a lot of the talents in the joint world, whether it's civilian attorneys who have military experience, State Department individuals who have that kind of background or a lot of NGO backgrounds. Of course, there's military attorneys there as well, and they do just do a fantastic job. And I was glad to be part of that for going on four years until I retired. Yeah, so you did that for four years, and now you moved to a sister organization at the IS. How did that line up? How did you approach that? I mean, was that the one job you wanted, or were you looking at several jobs? I was looking at uh, listening to your podcast. I was getting a lot of great ideas about going out into the corporate world. I think you and I, in particular, have a background of being an SJA, being ethics counselors, and kind of understanding, uh, certainly understanding how the investigations work. And so I thought I lined up uh, pretty well with a lot of those uh, jobs out there, but I found that applying for them, I wasn't getting a lot of callbacks, and I, you've been through it quite a bit. You've talked about it. I just didn't make it past the, uh, the the AI, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so from that perspective, I had a couple of things out there uh, that I was going to pursue. And uh, what I decided to do was about a year out, as soon as I could, I put in my resignation. And I didn't have a job, and uh, but I wanted to put that marker down. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe the Jack Corps will call me and say, hey, Ian, I see that you're resigning. Do you want this job or that job or any job? But I I knew it was time, Tom, because I didn't get any calls back. No emails, nothing. It was silence. So that told me all I really needed to know. So yeah. I guess the feeling was mutual. I've heard others say that, you know, when they, they put in a, a retirement resignation request with time still on the meter, that they didn't get a call back. And it was a clear cut indication to them that, that hey, we're happy to have a, a billet available to to promote others is sort of the what how they saw it. Yeah, and that's OK. Uh, it's OK. I was more amused than anything else. But I uh, put that in a year out. And so I kind of just forced myself to kind of take the dive. Uh, you know, I had five more years of running room that I gave up. I thought uh, the leadership job at deals, the leadership jobs I had throughout my career, I thought they would uh, 
benefit me sort of going out into the workforce. So I put it out there and then uh, things kind of fell together as there was this opening uh, for this job the following June or July. Uh, so I, I put in for it. I'd already planned my retirement ceremony. So I was just uh, fortunate enough to interview with it. Now, it's uh, probably helpful that my boss at Dills also became my boss at the sister organization. She's the president of uh, DSCU. So I was a known quantity for her. Uh, essentially, my job interview was about two years long, if you think about it that way. They're sure. probably the easiest set of interviews, only because I was still blunt, still had my candor, and I uh, was very straightforward about uh, what I thought I can do and what, I, what my skill set was or wasn't. And she hired me despite that. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in that regard. As a lawyer, though, and often given the, the opportunity to lead in the legal community, but not in your traditional NILSIC environments, but having uh, the ability to actually give them the opportunity really to, to lead in a non-legal organization was great. I was excited and I've really enjoyed it the last couple of months. I shared with you that I was an acting CEO within the Navy legal community for 10 months over Naples. And then people don't understand that at, at Gitmo, you know, when I was there, it was probably about 40 people, a rotational force. So I know there was over a hundred different folks that came through there and being responsible for everything. And I felt like I had more freedom down there, had more responsibility and a lot more freedom where I didn't have somebody looking over my shoulder, second guessing every decision that I made when it came to leadership. I mean, I had to fire people. I had to move people. I had to get people off the island when they had health issues. I remember one person had a spot in a uh, CAT scan that looked like cancer right as they were closing down everything for a hurricane and being able to pull strings to not only get them across the water, which had already been secured to ferry traffic because of the sea state, but to be able to call up and get the MAAs on their fast boats to get that person across the water, to let them get out on a jet and get that spot looked at immediately instead of thinking about it for a week. And I just found that being the uh, leader over there, and Pat McCarthy had told me, hey, this is your command tour, that it was much more meaningful without that reach back always coming to you. For sure. It's an incredible leadership job. It makes you a much better officer. You have to deal with a a ton of different issues and you have to make the decisions, which is not something uh, traditionally a lawyer tends to do. And so I agree with you about the command tour piece. And I, I thought it was just an incredibly valuable experience, very underrated in terms of jobs. And I think the Navy is very fortunate to have that job. I think they still do. No, I, I totally 100% agree with you. And I've always gravitated to those kind of jobs. Even when I was lieutenant in Iraq during 2004, I was the the executive officer of the liaison office. And I just, those are all decisions that I think that I had to make there involving, hey, do we take this convoy? Do we not take this convoy? I've got people who are scared to get in the vehicle. I understand that. How do you convince people to do their jobs? All those things that make you a better officer. And, and I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, I think. I think we all have, but I think I've just, I've been fortunate that I tend to not make the same mistakes twice. So IGS, tell us about that. What what are you doing there? What's the day look like for you? ISG. ISG. I keep saying it. I keep getting it backwards, but please forgive me there. It used to be CCMR. I don't know if you remember CCMR. They started the organization in 1994. So I'm uh, the director. So I've got a great executive staff. Uh, we've got about 115 and growing contractors, civilian staff, support staff. We have 
folks who have PhDs, we've got implementers, we've got practitioners, we've got support personnel, and they are traveling a lot, kind of like the uh, DILS dynamic. They're going all over the world, working with uh, ministries of defense and those kinds of things, whether it's developing a human resources manning plan or whether it's uh, maritime security operations. They're teaching all over the world. They're doing institutional capacity building, which is sort of this long-term planning effort. Uh, so it's really quite busy. We're actually, I think, uh, growing in size, and we're kind of relied upon right now as the sort of the lead institutional capacity building implementation team, uh, along with DILS. DILS does the discrete legal uh, piece, and we do everything else, for lack of a better term. Now, you said these are mostly contractors doing the traveling and the teaching for you guys. Do you have a core no. group of mostly GSs? Mostly GSs and what's called ADs. It's a different type of authority uh, for basically for uh, instructors. The schoolhouses like the War College have it as well. I am an AD. And so from that perspective, it's a, it's slightly different. But yeah, a lot of uh, we do have a lot of contract support, but the individuals who are actually running individual programs and lines of effort in different countries are all government employees. Now, did you have a break in service or did you just basically retire on one day, take a little terminal leave? and started right away in this position? I took three months of terminal leave, and I think I retired October 1st. I started the week before. Not a lot of overlap, but it, and if you look at it from that perspective, the timing was great. During that three months, I got a, I got a chance to decompress. I went hiking in Scotland. I did a 100-mile hike the West Highland Way with three of my college, two of my college buddies. It was a lot of fun. So I, I was able to decompress, and I felt pretty good having that break in service between being on active duty the day I, I did my formal retirement up in Newport, the Naval Justice School, until the day I started work. One of the things, you know, I've been doing this podcast for two years and I had a, a course laid out and it hasn't turned that way, but looking at the government piece, and I knew this, but I don't think I gave enough credence to it, is the length of time it takes to get onboarded on the civilian side. How long did it take you to get hired on the civilian side? to be able to start working in the sense of once they said, we'd like to give you an offer, how long did the process take? About two months. And that goes from off the offer to the counter offer to uh, finally negotiating the drug test and doing all those things where you have to do, uh, get all the materials in. It's quite a lengthy period of time. I don't know if that was frustrating. It was just sort of having been on the hiring end at Dills uh, for four years, I knew it. I knew the hiring process, uh, which is very helpful, I think. So I knew what to negotiate, what not to negotiate. I knew what was reasonable, what wasn't reasonable. But in terms of the time, yeah, I, I knew going in. The entire process from interviewing to uh, me onboarding was probably four months, Tom, four or five months. On the negotiation piece, without you know, without specifically giving away any, any trade secrets or sensitive information pertaining to your post specifically, what were the, some of the things that were up for negotiation? Oh, certainly your uh, leave accrual, which I think is critical. I think anybody with a large amount of military experience like you and I will have an advantage when it comes to leave accrual, making the argument for it. One of the things with the Department of Defense and being on the hiring side is you cannot, you're not going to offend anybody with your ask. It's part of the process. In fact, if you're not asking for things, I think you're leaving, uh, you're leaving things on the table. That's not going to be helpful for you and your family when it comes to the paycheck. So leave accrual for sure. And then arguing uh, that uh, what your value is to the organization. I mean, you can't be shy. You know, I argued a certain level. They came in at a decent level and I was able to, to really increase it. I said, you're hiring me to be the head of this organization. You got to pay me like it. And what? how much pushback did you get? Uh, they met me halfway, uh, more than halfway. I was very, very happy with 
what they ended up giving me because uh, it's it's less about the money and more about the status. If you want me to be in charge of the organization, I think, and if you value me that way, you certainly hired me. Well, then you probably need to pay me commensurate with that position. And that that happens in DoD. I'm sure it happens out in the commercial world. Uh, and from that perspective, you are the selectee. You have a little bit of leverage because I think in general, this is something to consider because it is painful having been on the other side of the hiring process and hiring people. If you turn down the offer, it is another two, three months, even if you have an alternate to go through that cycle, depending on the circumstances. So you have a little bit of leverage. If they really, really want you and it's a good fit and your your requests are, are fairly uh, reasonable or at least within their, the scope of what they can and cannot approve, then you have a little bit of leverage because they don't want to lose you because that process stinks being on the government hiring side when you have to go another two, three, four months or maybe even rehire. And do the whole hiring process again, because that was the only person that you really wanted to hire for the job. So there's leverage even on the government side is what I would say, Tom. Yeah, I would, I would think that it would even be more so on the government side for that very reason. You know, looking at this from the selectee or, or the applicant at this point, you know, I interviewed with another agency a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to have a follow-up interview next week. If they make the offer and I accept that knowing that it's a two-month, three-month window, that they know they're always vulnerable to you being picked off and then they have to start again. And I'm sure that this, the hiring process government wide sits well with nobody from the agency perspective or the applicant perspective, because it's such a burdensome process. It takes so long. And in particular, DC, I've got, uh, I've got some good friends who are going through the hiring process right now. And he's gotten a final offer at one agency and the other agencies are trying to pick him off right now. And so in DC, that's for sure. I could see that absolutely happy. You have more leverage from that perspective. Have you had many people reach out to you since you moved over to this job? I have. I've had a lot of folks on LinkedIn. I've got uh, former JAGs, uh, former contacts who are uh, not in the non-legal billets as well, who've uh, reached out to me, either asking for advice on, hey, how did you, a non-lawyer, get this job out in uh, Monterey working uh, for this organization that does security cooperation on such a large scale? So uh, I've been free to give my advice. And if anyone reaches out to me, I'm absolutely willing to talk to them about it. I, I do know it's a, I'm a little bit of a unicorn from that perspective. I've got a, I've got a, I've been in fortunate enough to be in a lot, have had a lot of leadership experience. Uh, and that means having had, like I said earlier, made a lot of mistakes, try not to make the same ones um, and dealing with civilian oversight can be tricky. Dealing with a lot of uh, civilian employees is not quite the same. Not a lot of military officers don't have that level of experience. I have a lot of uh, civilian management experience just by virtue of the jobs I've been in. So I think it's uh, it's interesting. But you know, leadership is leadership. And while I don't know a lot about logistics or acquisitions uh, or developing a human resource structure for a, a partner nation, I know uh, how to evaluate talent. And I know how to hold people accountable uh, to do those things and get everybody kind of rolling in the right direction. And so those are the keys. I would say, too, if you ever if anyone plans to or would like to work for a defense agency or work for a geographical combatant command and at whatever capacity uh, or a joint world as a civilian, the key is to be in those billets when you're in active duty. And that, that sounds sort of uh, sort of simplistic, but it's not. That means you have to go outside the Army, outside the Air Force, outside the Navy and actually go out in the joint world and see how the Department of Defense truly operates outside your service. I did it for more than half my 24 years. And that gave me a much better understanding of how the Pentagon works, how the, how the combatant commands work, 
and had a much better sense of that. So when I was looking for these kinds of jobs like Dills, uh, when I retired out of Dills, I had a much better understanding of, of really how the whole of uh, government works. And you're not going to get that in your individual service. And that's not a knock on the service. But if you stay in the Navy JAG Corps, for instance, uh, you're not going to have that level of experience and understand it. So you won't be, you won't, it'll be much more difficult for you to attain those jobs later on. Now you had, uh, they had to get the waiver for you as well, didn't they? Uh, the 180 day waiver? They did. And, and how long did that take? Uh, it depends on the agency. DSEA uh, works with DLA and uh, DLA was able to, I didn't see the inner workings of it. Sure. They just told me, Hey, we got the waiver. Uh, and that can vary at different commands. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, some, the Navy maybe takes it a little bit uh, or has a different process. I understand it's a little bit more difficult. Potentially. I'm not sure about that, but I've heard those things. And then certainly when I was at Northcom and we're looking at some of the same waivers, that's an air force servicing a combatant command. And it, and it took a lot higher of a, an approval authority. So I'm fortunate yeah. that way at DSCA, they had that level of approval and I was able to get it. And still uh, basically a week before I retired, I was able to uh, become a civilian. Anything you would have done differently in approaching this or did it just work out as it was? I would say um, no, I, I would have handled it the the same way. I was looking to get off active duty. I, I felt like I had pretty much done everything I wanted to do. I had looked at the, uh, the slate, Tom, and I looked at uh, all the jobs and none of them were particularly appealing to me. Yeah. And that's okay. And I enjoyed being outside of the Navy Jack Corps, sort of the traditionally. And, and that's not, a, again, not a knock on the Jack Corps. I just enjoyed being in the joint or defense agency world. And Dills was such a wonderful job that I felt that if I went to another job, that I would just be hurting my job prospects going forward. I wanted to leave out on top. I thought being the director of Dills was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, the Navy Jack Corps extended me a year. So I did the four years there and I felt like I made a difference. I learned a ton from the people who I worked with. And so it's just a great jumping off, off opportunity. I hadn't really envisioned this job, but when it became open, I, I kind of felt like it was a, a pretty good fit. Unfortunately, my boss thought so too. So, so far, so good. I'll tell you uh, one of the neat things about it is the, uh, the job's difficult. It's a lot of work, a lot of great people, you know, we're moving along. But the interesting thing is as a civilian, I could just put in my resignation whenever I want. And so that's kind of a, a freeing feeling, Tom. You don't have to go to uh, to MPC and ask them for, hey, give me six months or a year and all the paperwork. Whenever I get tired of it, I could just drop my resignation, which is a nice, nice feeling. You know, what's funny is, is when I first approached you about doing this podcast was several months ago, and you said, well, let me see if I'm still around and then I'll do it. And I, I think there was that concern of I'm drinking from a fire hose and, and I'm not sure that I can safely say that I'm going to be here. But, you know, that initial I think that initial angst, if you will, is very helpful when you're when you're taking on a new assignment such, such as this. No, for sure. I felt that way. It's, uh, you know, everything is new. But having been at Dills and, and this is sort of a sister organization, I was in the same space. Yeah, as ISG, the Institute for Security Governance. So I, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into, or what, what they were. They knew what they were buying from me, and I kind of knew what I was buying over there. So none of the, none of the challenges particularly surprised me. Uh, it's just going to be difficult. But I, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy the people. I love the mission. You know, it's working with, and this is another thing. I sort of when you asked me to come on, I was thinking about it. What I really wanted to do is work with foreign partners. Uh, when I was in Iraq and, and you were in Afghanistan, weren't you? 
I was Iraq. I did. Oh, uh, I was the MNFI, but I was the advisor to the commanding general for detention operations. Yeah. That is when they were just starting to stand up that whole law and order task force. Mark Martins was the SJA. General Petraeus took over and they were standing that up. Yeah, I was the uh, director at Laodif. I love that job. Yeah. And uh, Fob Shield in Solder City. Tough neighborhood. <laughs> For sure. Well, Ian, you look great. You you sound you sound content. And uh, I, I'm happy for you. And I'm happy that you, uh, you, you got what you want. In this job, in this, I shouldn't say job because I don't have one yet. But in this seat of interviewing people, I, I really get genuinely happy for people that landed where they wanted land. You know, people like Johnny Nelson a couple of weeks ago doing baseball and, and you, you know, that you worked for this, you got it and you're enjoying it. Give so much hope to people coming out the door behind you. Well, that that time and uh, the idea that uh, you don't have to be a uh, golden child in your respective service to succeed. Uh, yes. And I I and perhaps you are not golden children of our respective Jack Corps. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just we're not the the, the types of people that uh, that they saw and, hey, I'm going to be a, a Ian Wexler's going to be the next uh, T-Jag or anything like that. That was never spoken or put in a sentence. And that's that's OK. And the point of this podcast to me is and I just want to express, you know, keep your head down, work hard, take the hard jobs, uh, get a, a crew leadership experience, no matter how much you, you know, how how difficult it is. It's always a positive experience. And, and once you do that, you work hard enough, you get rewarded. All right. Well, Ian, thank you. I wish you a continued happy holiday season since we're now in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I guess I got to shift to happy holidays. Uh, stay in touch and uh, keep up the great work, man. Thanks, Tom. Good luck to you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production. 